Hello to you. I do hope you're well. Welcome to the RE Podcast. I'm Ben Wardle and coming up today we are talking all things ontological argument. Now I don't know about you but I think a lot of people are slightly terrified when they hear those words ontological argument. They're very big, they're very overwhelming aren't they? But in this session, in this podcast episode, we are going to crack the ontological argument. We are going to leave this podcast with everything we need to know, including the key content, so those key AO1 ideas and the key evaluation. We'll also be asking some of the key questions about this argument, including can existence be treated as a predicate? Are there logical fallacies in this argument and can they be overcome? Does the ontological argument justify belief? And are a priori arguments successful? And I think that's a great place to start, isn't it, with the ontological argument because it is primarily an a priori argument. And what does that mean? Obviously, we've got on the one hand a priori, on the other hand a posteriori. Our cosmological and teleological are a posteriori. They use evidence. Remember, it's in like posteriori, post-evidence. So you look at things and you examine things and you see things and then you come to your conclusion whereas a priori is prior to evidence and when we say evidence we mean that empirical evidence so it's prior to any experience whatsoever it's solely and purely through thought alone so it's coming to a logical conclusion um, and so what it requires all that it requires is thought. So essentially Anselm, who is of course our key proponent of the ontological argument, is trying to prove, and we're using that word very carefully and we'll see why as we get into our key evaluation points later on, he's trying to prove, if I can use that word, the existence of God through thought alone. So you do not need to see any physical evidence. You don't need to see proof, if you like. All you need, he believes, is logic, thought. And by thinking about God, you will know he necessarily exists. So it's quite an odd argument, <laughs> if I can put it like that, not to put too many of my own opinions in, but I think especially in the world today, you know, uh, we live in an age of epistemic imperialism, the idea that in order to believe something, we want evidence. AJR sums this up. He's a key humanist thinker, of course. You'll probably know him from the 20th century perspectives, verification principle, that idea that unless something is an empirically verifiable proposition, you know, unless we have evidence for it, we don't believe it. We want to see it, whether that's in a science lab, you know, with our own eyes. We like the empirical method. It's very much a case of Aristotle has triumphed with his empiricism over that platonic notion of a priori knowledge. That's not to say a priori, I've got a bit Australian now. That's not to say that a priori doesn't play a role, for example, with maths. Of course, you know, maths, and all of that is very much a priori, it's about logic. Um, but in terms of proving things in, in the real world, can I put it like that? If we're proving things actually exist, people like physical evidence. They like to see the photos, you know, like with the moon landings, people like to see a photo. They like to see the evidence. The whole thing with the ontological argument is you don't need any of that a posteriori evidence, proof, explanation, whatever. It's all about logic. Just by thinking about it, just by using reasoning, you will come to the conclusion. And by conclusion, in this case, we mean you will be justified in your belief or you will be converted in your belief. Now, I'm using my language very carefully here because a very important thing you need to remember whenever you're talking about the ontological argument is it comes from St. Anselm. Now, he had a really interesting approach to faith. He said, credo ut intelligem. I've said that really, really badly. Like my pronunciation there was terrible of the Latin. But what he means is that I believe in order to understand. Faith precedes understanding. Now, this is very, very significant because he is working on the assumption that you believe in God and then you understand God. 
okay? Whereas, as I say, in today's world, we like the understanding before we believe something. We want it proven, we want it demonstrated to us, we want the evidence before we will believe in it. Whereas Anselm approached this in a totally different way. He said, you know, I have my faith in God, so I believe in God, now I'm going to demonstrate it. This raises really interesting questions, and we'll see this when we talk about whether ontological arguments justify um, belief. And my argument that I would always make in my A-level essays many, many years ago was that the ontological argument works if you already believe in God, and in particular, if you believe in Anselm's definition of God. Now, that's not to say that all religious people support this argument, as we're going to find out at St. Thomas of Aquinas. St. Thomas of Aquinas? St. Thomas Aquinas, <laughs> um, he was very anti this argument. He said, this is not how you prove God exists. It doesn't work. Ontological arguments don't work. But one line of argument that I would always use is that if somebody has faith and believes in Anselm's definition of God, so they believe that with total conviction and confidence, then it's logical that his argument will work. And um, because by definition, God necessarily exists. But accepting his definition is a matter of faith. There is no proof of it. So it, it does get a little bit, not complicated, but let's use the word complex. So we're going to break it down, take it step by step. Um, but the first thing you do need to know is that in contrast to our a posteriori arguments, which of course come from the um, cosmological and teleological arguments, this is a a priori argument. So it's reason alone. He's going to prove this to us. Are you ready for this? Hey, he's good, isn't he? If he can prove to us that God exists using reason and thought and logic alone, Anselm, let's get you an award, my love. Seriously, you deserve a pay rise, but I'm not holding my breath. So we're going to get straight into it then. There are some quite fancy terms that we're going to come across, such as contingent, determining predicate, analytic, synthetic, but I don't want you to worry. And if there's any terms I mention and you're thinking, what, and I've not explained it, please comment down below and we'll sort that out straight away, my loves. Don't let me get too carried away. So we're going to be talking all things St. Anselm. Now, Anselm, as we know, he was a monk. He lived in France um, and then he actually became the Archbishop of Canterbury. So he had a little, little promotion there, didn't he? He was living his best life. Now, again, very important, he was deeply religious anyway. So it wasn't like he had an epiphany moment when he discovered this argument and that converted him to believing in God, if that makes sense. He believed in God. He had that faith and that belief as his starting point and then the argument came along. So again, that idea of faith precedes understanding. Keep that in mind and, you know, it, hopefully it will become apparent why I'm saying that. <laughs> again, if it doesn't, please comment down below. So he had some key quotes. I believe in order to understand... Um, and his key quote, his definition of God is this. God is a being than which nothing greater can be conceived. And he believes very strongly that even the fool in the Psalms knows that, accepts that definition of God. And as I say, that's really going to unlock what we understand about um, Anselm. One thing I have to say again, and I do sound like a stuck record, but I have to emphasise this. He talks about faith preceding understanding. This is significant because the ontological argument he actually wrote as a kind of prayer. So it was a kind of prayer. Sorry, anyone watching, I've just thrown a piece of paper in front of the camera. Do apologise. Very professional, isn't it? You don't get this at the BBC. Um, he, he had this deep, deep faith and this deep belief. So for him, with the idea of God he had in mind, I have no doubt that this argument worked wonders. But when we apply it, it it's not necessarily going to convert anyone, if I can put it like that, you know. But was that even his intention? But that's a whole other debate that we can have because he wrote it as a prayer. So did he just write it for people who already believe or did he have the intention of converting people to Christianity, to belief in the Christian God with this argument. We're going to discuss all that and unpack that, but let's actually work out what the argument is first, he says nine minutes in. So, in his first formulation of the argument, his starting point is the fool in the Psalms. And Anselm makes the point that atheists know what they are rejecting. He says they understand God because they have to understand God in order to say he doesn't exist. 
So he's saying that every single person has an understanding of God. And he uses this as his reason that you must therefore believe in him. So basically, in a nutshell, Anselm is going to argue that if you can understand God, so if you can consider the concept of God, then you have to accept he exists. Now, you could say, well, yes, he exists as an idea. You know, he exists as a concept. I accept that. I understand the idea of God, but that doesn't prove he exists in reality. But Anselm is very clever because he says the understanding you have of God means he must not only exist in your mind, but also in reality. Uh, and we'll be talking about that in terms of like a painter and a painting. That's an analogy he uses. We'll also be coming back on that with Gaunilo, who'll be talking about you can imagine a perfect island. That doesn't mean it exists in reality. So here's the argument. You know, we've all got that common understanding. And he says, we all have this particular understanding. Let me tell you this. So he says, when everybody understands God, they understand God as that than which nothing greater can be conceived. So every single person understands God as the greatest possible being. And he says that the atheist understands this as much as the theist. Are you noticing the problems already? I hope you are. Um, and therefore, every person has this understanding of God as that than which nothing greater can be conceived. They understand God as the greatest possible being. And God exists in everyone's minds, therefore. If you can think of God, you can understand God. He says, but the definition of God is that he is the greatest possible being. And he says, everybody has this definition of God. Therefore, it is greater to exist, this is the argument, genuinely, this is the argument, it is greater to exist in reality than just in the mind. So everyone who understands God knows he can't exist in the mind alone, because then there would be a greater being, and that would be a contradiction. So God must exist both in the mind and in reality. He exists. So let's just unpack that for one second, please. Anselm is arguing if you can think of God and he's assuming that when you think of God, you think of a, um, a being that than which nothing greater can be conceived or thought. So you are thinking anybody that thinks of God thinks of God as the greatest possible being. He is then saying that by definition, you must accept God exists not just in your mind. And he's proven God exists in your mind because even the atheist can think of God. Even the fool in the Psalms can think of God. He says, if you can think of God, then you must know that God exists in reality because by definition, God cannot be limited to just being in your mind. So if you can think of God, which every single person can, then you must believe in God as existing in reality. Now, I mean, where do we start with the issues of this? Again, this idea that Anselm is effectively trying to define God into um, existence. He's saying that if you can consider a concept, you have no choice but to believe in the actual existence of that concept. And the concept is God, obviously. And he takes this a little bit further with what we call his second formulation. Okay. And this is where he makes a distinction between contingent and necessary beings. So what's this all about? So you've got beings that you can imagine as not existing that are contingent beings. So that's the idea that you can imagine something, you can think of something and you can think of it not existing. So you can imagine it without it actually existing. So I'm trying to think, I could imagine a planet made of trying to think of what I'd like a planet to be made of. <laughs> a planet made of chocolate. That's what we're going to go for. I hope it's not too near the sun because it will be melted. But we're going to have a planet made of chocolate. It's a contingent being. So whenever something's contingent, its existence depends on something else. And we'll remember that from the cosmological argument. Well, I hope we will anyway. Um, so it's a, be it's a being, it's a thing that can and cannot exist. You can imagine it as existing, you can imagine it as not existing. And when it's contingent, its existence depends on something else. Um, so on the other hand, you have necessary beings. So you've got these contingent beings that you can imagine as not existing. And then you've got these necessary beings, which are beings that cannot not exist. So they necessarily exist. So these are the two types of beings that he is 
imagining and he is conceiving of. Now, Anselm argues that necessary beings are better than contingent beings, right? Here's where he takes this argument. If God were a contingent being, he wouldn't be the greatest possible being because he wouldn't possess everything there is to possess. There would be an even greater being because that being would be necessary. He therefore argues that God must be a necessary being because his definition is the greatest possible being. And so if God is a necessary being, then God cannot exist, cannot not exist. Sorry. Oh, totally got that wrong. Sorry. Let me say that again. If God is a necessary being, then then God cannot not exist, which means God exists. Let's just unpack that for one minute. So what Anselm is now arguing is that because you can imagine God and because he is sure, he is convinced that you imagine God as the greatest possible being, then you must imagine God as a necessary being. Because if he's not necessary, then he's not the greatest possible being. If he's a contingent being, then he is not the greatest possible being. And so that is not the definition of God. And so by definition, God is a necessary being. So there you go, really, in an argument, by definition, in an argument, in a nutshell, God is a necessary being. That's the argument. God is, by definition, a necessary being. Therefore, he necessarily exists. So we've got that first formulation where Anselm is telling you your definition of God, that he's convinced 100% you believe. So he's telling you the definition of God that you have because he knows. And he's saying by that definition, God cannot just exist in your imagination. He has to exist in reality. And then he's backing up his point by saying, because you believe God is the greatest possible being, you must believe that God is a necessary being. Because if he was a contingent being, he wouldn't be the greatest possible being. Again, we are going around and around in circles here um, in terms of language, you know, this language, um, you know, you can link in very nicely here with Wittgenstein and language games. This language only seems to make sense within Anselm's own language game. All of these, you know, these terms that he's throwing at us and all of these premises he's giving us only make sense to someone who believes in the God he is describing. And again, that's fine because Anselm is writing this as a prayer and he's talking about um, faith preceding understanding. I believe in order to understand. But you have to believe in this language game. You have to be participating in this language game where you do define God as the greatest possible being, where you do define God as that than which nothing greater can be conceived. If you do not participate in this language game that um, Anselm's got going on, then I'm sorry, but you're just going to think these words are empty. To just say something necessarily exists is meaningless. It has no meaning whatsoever. Just by using those two words, necessarily exists, you cannot define something into existence. You cannot use those words to actually prove God exists if somebody isn't partaking in that language game. I hope that makes sense. So what we're going to do now is explore the first of many, many criticisms, <laughs> um, which comes from Gaunilo. Now, like Aquinas, who was a religious person, that's a bit of an understatement to call Aquinas a religious person, a very religious person, a key founding doctor of the Catholic Church, heavy hitting, <laughs> as Catholic as they come, <laughs> um, another religious thinker who was not impressed with Anselm was Gaunilo. Now, he was another monk. Um, so again, he already believed in God. And he wrote what he titled um, a response on behalf of the fool. So obviously, Anselm addressed the original argument to the fool in the Psalms. That's who he's talking it to. Talking it to? That is terrible English. That's who he's speaking to, who he's addressing. And Gaunilo makes this response, okay? And he is a monk and he writes his response on behalf of the fool. And he wants to show that understanding the definition of God does not necessarily mean God exists, which, as you will remember, was Anselm's original argument, that if you can understand this definition of God, then you have no option but to believe he necessarily exists. So here's Gaunilo's argument. I'd love to know what you think of this. His response. I just need some green tea. Anselm's really, really sending 
sending me for the green tea today. Right, so Gaunilo says, imagine, I want you to imagine, like Anselm says about God, imagine the greatest conceivable, and then Gaunilo says, island. So basically, Gaunilo is repeating Anselm's argument, but with the word God replaced with island. So imagine the greatest conceivable, but lost island, somewhere in the ocean. Um, imagine that island. So imagine it in your head. I want you to imagine it now. I don't know what's on your island, what's on my island. I've got lots of books, lots of green tea, lots of sun, lots of factor 50. Right, so I'm on the, I'm on the beach of the island. So imagine it in your head. So if you were, if you were told about the island, you would be able to imagine it. Okay. Suppose you were told there is no doubt this island exists because by definition, it is the greatest conceivable island. So logically, it must exist as it is better to exist in reality than just in the mind. Would you therefore believe that island actually exists? So go back, go back, I'm telling myself to go back, by the way. <laughs> We're going to just go back. So you're imagining this greatest conceivable island, the greatest possible island. You've got it in your head. The first problem we've got is everybody's conceiving of a different island, aren't they? When I say to you, your greatest possible island, someone's got a PS4 on their island. Someone's got Percy Pigs. You know, everybody's got something different on their island. So there's our first problem with Anselm's argument. When he says to us, you understand God as the greatest possible being. Greatest possible being means different things to different people. So is Anselm proving the Christian God? Is Anselm proving that every single person has their own independently existing God? So are there seven billion gods? What is he proving? Nobody shares the exact same image of God in their minds. So what God is Anselm proving exists necessarily in reality. But back to the island. So you're imagining the greatest possible island, an island that which no, no greater island can be conceived. So if this island that you are imagining is the greatest possible island, then it must exist in reality as well as in your mind, because otherwise there could be an even better island. Does that logic follow through to that island actually existing, is what Gaunilo's asking. And the argument is obviously not. You would not feel from that that anything had been proven because there's no actual evidence of this island. It may exist in your imagination, but not necessarily in reality. So by the definition of the island, you, you do not believe it exists in reality, if that makes sense. So you can certainly imagine it, but that does not, just by saying this island is the greatest possible island, that doesn't mean it must necessarily exist. You know, with the second formulation, that for God to be the greatest possible being, God cannot be a contingent being, he must be a necessary being. It's again, that argument that this island cannot be contingent, it must be necessary because it's simply because it's described as the greatest possible island. It's this use of language to define an abstract concept, an idea into existence. Is it possible? Can we do that? Gaunilo is obviously saying no. Now, Anselm hits back here. Anselm was not happy about this. He said, how dare you compare God to an island? <laughs> he said, don't do it. That is cheeky. Obviously, he didn't say that. Please don't quote that in your essay. Um, what he said is that you're getting it wrong. God is not like an island. God is a necessary being. God is a different kind of island. No, he's not an island. A different kind of thing, sorry. God is a different kind of thing. God is a necessary being. He is a special case, whereas an island is a contingent being. So again, you can evaluate this and critique this by saying, on what grounds can Anselm claim God is a special case? Do you have to just accept that as a matter of faith? If that's the case, then this argument, the ontological argument, only works for people who already believe in God. You know, why is somebody who doesn't believe in God just going to go, yeah, okay, God's a special case, I accept your argument. You know, at what stage... Do you just have to go, okay, this argument is based on acceptance of premises on a matter of faith? 
rather than evidence or proof. Um, for example, with the island, you know, just by saying, oh, well, no, you can't compare God to an island. God is a special case. You know, on what grounds does this argument work at this stage, quite frankly? Um, so, yeah, Anselm has accused Gaunilo of misplacing his logic and says he was not talking about a contingent thing such as an island, but a necessary thing, God. Obviously, there you go. <laughs> Problem solved. Sorry. Sorry, Anselm. We get it now. Um, Gaunilo then goes on. Gaunilo was not impressed at all. Gaunilo compared this to um, gossiping. We can imagine the people being discussed, but that doesn't mean what we're being told about them is true. So he uses the example of gossip, that we can imagine the people being discussed in gossip, but that doesn't mean what we're being told about them is true. Um, again, another criticism which we identified with the island. There is no common understanding of God. In the same way, if I said to you, imagine the greatest possible island, when I say to you, imagine God as the greatest possible being, your idea of the greatest possible being is going to be different from the next person, the next person, and the next person. So the idea of a greatest possible being means different things to different people. How does that translate into a monotheistic God? It doesn't. How can you all, all 7 billion people, come to the same conclusion of God from the phrase greatest possible being? You're going to have 7 billion different greatest possible beings. So it does not necessarily lead to the Christian monotheistic God. Um, Ganilo also says you can never understand on description alone. You cannot define something into existence. Um, and... We can imagine God's existence and non-existence in the same way we can imagine our own existence and non-existence. So Anselm's argument is that it's impossible to imagine God as not existing. Anybody who thinks of God, imagines God, conceives of God must know he necessarily exists. Like that is not up for debate. By definition, God necessarily exists. That is the core, that is the crux, the entirety of his argument. And uh, Gaunilo is saying that's not the case at all. In the same way that you can imagine yourself as existing and being alive, and you can also imagine yourself as not existing and, and dying, we can all imagine that. You can imagine God as existing, and you can imagine God as not existing. And so God is not some special case, necessary being, who you can just sugarcoat, bubble wrap and use in this a priori argument. You know, you cannot do that. You need to tell me more about God. You need to give me proof about God that goes further than saying, well, he's the greatest possible being. He necessarily exists. Because I understand God is necessarily existing, he necessarily exists. And that then proves he exists. Listen, we're going round in circles with the language, aren't we, my loves? I'm sorry if you're getting a headache from this, but we're just trying to demonstrate how there is very much this circular logic, you know, saying that something necessarily exists because by definition it necessarily exists does not, <laughs> in my opinion, prove anything unless you accept as a matter of faith that God by definition necessarily exists. But the definition necessarily exists cannot prove God necessarily exists, if that makes sense. To be honest, it probably doesn't. <laughs> but ask me any questions. And if you've got a good way of putting this, please put it down in the comments. Give us a little soundbite. We're going to move on to a more contemporary supporter of the ontological argument. Yes, there are some. <laughs> um, and this is Descartes. It's Descartes. Of course it is. So Descartes has a really interesting perspective on this. Descartes says that God is the sum of all perfections. OK, so again, this idea of defining God into existence, looking at the definitions. So Descartes says that God um, is perfect. God is perfection. God is the sum of all perfections and God possesses existence. And this is genuinely Descartes' um, argument, by the way. Because God is perfect, 
God exists. So because God is by definition the sum of all perfections and possesses perfection, he must possess existence because if he didn't possess everything, he would not exist. Um, so let, yeah, let's break this down a little bit further. Um, again, by the way, Descartes on the a priori side of things, um, rejecting the senses. Remember his very famous cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. You can't trust your senses, so you must work things out through um, rational thought alone. Avoid evidence from the senses at all costs. Um, so let me talk you through. So he's got the example of a triangle. So a triangle this is a triangle is determined by having three angles which add up to two right angles, 180 degrees. This has been the case even before we knew the fact. He says this, in the same way, God, who is the supremely perfect being by definition, must exist. His existence is as fundamental to his es essence as having angles adding up to two right angles is to being a triangle. So basically, in the same way that a triangle must have three angles, or what, are, what is it, 180 degrees. So in the same way that a triangle must add up to 180 degrees, he says God must exist because existence is his essence. So you cannot talk about a triangle not having 180 degrees, you know, because that would be illogical. It would not be a triangle if it did not have 180 degrees as the combined total. In the same way, God would not be God if he didn't have existence, because existence is at the core of his essence. Another example here is a mountain requiring a valley. You can't separate a mountain from a valley. They are interconnected. You cannot separate them at all. In the same way, you cannot separate God and existence. However, there are problems. So he, again, is taking a very, very, how do I put it diplomatically? Very interesting stance that by definition, God exists. So you cannot separate God and existence. They are connected and you cannot separate them. It is the essence of God to exist. In the same way, it's the essence of a triangle to be 180 degrees. It is the essence of God to possess existence. In the same way that a triangle possesses 180 degrees as a combined total of the angles, God possesses existence as fact. Like, that's it. However, we have complications. And a very strong argument, and we're going to be talking about this from Kant now, is that you can say that if God exists, he possesses existence. But saying God possesses existence doesn't prove God exists. Is that making sense? It's a little bit like this. Let me tell you this. Thinking of the mountain and a valley, saying that they can't be separated, doesn't mean they actually exist. So if, if you can think of a concept, if God exists, he necessarily exists, but that doesn't prove he exists. As I keep saying, we're going around in circles, and this is the core problem, actually, by the way. It's a circular logic. These ontological arguments are using words to try and define things into existence, and we just keep going around in circles. Um... Descartes' response to that, by the way, is that, oh, shock horror, same excuse as Anselm, God is different because the mountain and the valley still go together even if they don't exist. So God and existence still go together. Basically, the word God for Descartes means the existing God exists. So this is, this is the thing you've really got to try and get your head around. For him, the word God means existence. It's like trying to deny the existence of existence. Do you know what I mean? It's this notion of using existence as a, we call it a determining predicate to prove existence. So Descartes is saying God exists because God exists. That's it. Again, we see a very similar line of argument from Anselm, don't we? The argument I will continuously make is that if you believe God exists, you are 
are more likely to accept this argument. But if you do not, these words are empty and they have no meaning. You're going to go, you can't just say something exists because it exists. That's not how it works. And I can't even say those words, so I'm going to stop saying them. <laughs> um, so Kant comes in and he says, this is ridiculous. He doesn't say that. Again, please don't quote that in an essay. <laughs> he says, existence is obviously not a predicate. It is not a determining predicate. So a, a predicate is something that is a characteristic or a quality. And we can say if it possesses a characteristic, we can prove it exists because we can see something and we can know something about it. But you can't say something exists because it possesses existence. You need something more. You need to say something more sufficient in order to therefore demonstrate and prove it actually exists. Um, so Kant's argument is, again, that you can't define God into existence like Gaunilo. Um, and it's the idea from Kant that ontological arguments are bad logic because they make us suppose that if we justify God's perfection as including existence, we are assuming God exists. So if you're saying, again, like with the greatest possible being, if you're saying God is the sum of all perfections, and you are using that to say, therefore, God exists, that kind of assumption is not credible. It doesn't work. And again, when we talk in a moment about the logical fallacies of this argument, we're going to really hone in on that, the assumptions the argument makes, which are, we could argue, without foundation. It, it doesn't prove anything unless you have all of these assumptions which Anselm clearly does, but a contemporary sceptic does not. And even a religious person may not either. Um, so you can't just start naming properties such as existence as proof. Again, it can demonstrate a concept and it can demonstrate an idea. So you could say, okay, yeah, if God exists, then that existence is necessary because that is part of the package of how we understand God. But that doesn't mean God necessary, necessarily exists anywhere but in your mind. It doesn't prove anything more than that. But again, it's that argument that it's a circular logic. Um, it, it might demonstrate things about God, but it doesn't prove God actually exists in the real world. So I would love to know, what do you think? Please, please, please comment down below. I would love to hear what you think. Um, a final example you can use from Kant is on the triangle point, actually. You know, you can say a triangle has 180 degrees if it exists. It doesn't prove it actually exists. You can say, you know, um, a triangle has three angles if the triangle exists in the first place. So Kant says that the triangle argument comes from a judgment and not from the triangle and its existence. A judgment is not the same as the absolute necessity of something. The triangle only has three angles if the triangle exists in the first place. So Kant argues that ontological arguments are bad logic because they make us suppose that if we justify God's perfection as including existence, we are assuming that God exists. It is a circular logic. Um, now, a, a really good example of this is from um, Kant's time, the currency, which was called Thalers. Now, he used the argument that if you can imagine a hundred Thalers, that does not prove they exist in front of you. You know, you would want to have them in front of you. That's how you know they exist. And so in the same way, um, the existence of the Thalers cannot be defined by logic. The experience or existence of God cannot be defined by logic. You cannot use an a priori argument to try and demonstrate or prove or whatever you want to do the existence of God. You need to provide some kind of evidence. These a priori arguments do not work. Um, this kind of existence cannot 
um, be defined by logic and proven by a priori arguments alone. Uh, so Kant's approach is to say that thinkers who put forward an ontological argument are treating existence in completely the wrong way. In particular, that they are treating existence as a predicate. So Kant was very clear, existence is not a determining predicate and therefore it does not give us information in the same way other predicates might. Um, so you, you cannot use existence as a determining predicate. It cannot be used to prove something exists. Um, this leads us very nicely then to sort of our key focus today, which is to have some green tea. <laughs> I need to lie down in a dark room after this, I'm telling you now. Um, logical fallacies, which is a great topic for us to be discussing. Um, so, here are some of the key questions regarding the logical fallacies in this argument that I would love for you to tell me about. Um, here they are. Can God be defined into existence? So, can you define God into existence or do you require further evidence, further proof, further examples, further attributes in order to know God actually exists as anything more than a concept. So can you actively say that by definition, God necessarily exists? Can you do that? Will people be able to get their head around that, accept that, believe in that? What do we think? Um, is Anselm's definition of God appropriate? So that definition that Anselm gives as God being the greatest possible being is that appropriate? Is that the definition of God? Where's he got that definition from? Who shares that definition? Who actually accepts that definition? And do they all come to the same conclusion of what a greatest possible being looks like? So that definition alone, we can say, requires a lot of assumptions um, that you will believe in exactly the same greatest possible being as Anselm. So lots of assumptions there and a question of appropriateness. Is that the definition of God that every Christian or every monotheist would believe in um, and accept? So Anselm himself, for example, does not define greatness and different people define greatness in different ways. So have we got seven billion different gods? Um, is the greatest possible being even logical? Is it even logical to talk of a being of this kind and this nature? Does that make sense in accordance with the laws of the universe? Is there the possibility of such a thing as the greatest possible being? Is it therefore fair to say everyone has a common understanding of God in their minds? Again, um, that idea of the subjectivity of God and what God may look like and resemble and be for each of the people, Anselm is saying, well, you can conceive of God, you can conceive of God, yes, but is it the same God as you? Every single person's understanding of a greatest possible being is going to be culturally relative, it's going to be based on their previous experiences, on their personal lens and the way in which they envision and imagine the world, so how on earth does this lead you to the Christian God? How on earth does it do it in the same way that uh, imagining a perfect island, there are going to be seven billion different perfect islands? How do you have any standardization and consistency? You know, what 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 is he trying to do here? Except confuse me. Um, is the argument a play on words? Is the existence of someone the same as the essence of that person? So if you were describing somebody, would you use the fact they exist? as their essence. So if you were describing me, would that you go, yeah, Ben Wardle, he exists. And that's what you would say. <laughs> there you go. You know, so Descartes, for example, using existence as the essence of God, um, and then using that as the determining predicate to prove God, can you actually do that? Is it not, as we keep on saying again and again and again, a certain language game, a certain play on words? Um, and in what way are you experiencing this God? So when we think about the way God is being experienced by this ontological argument, in, in what way is this God being interacted with or understood if you see what I mean so when you think of God is that belief in God is that what we're proving or are we proving a man on a cloud are we proving God as incarnate through Jesus Christ 
what are we actually proving here? What kind of God are we trying to demonstrate? Um, so really, really interesting. And this then leads us to our fundamental question about whether ontological arguments justify belief. And my point that I started off our session today by talking about um, of the, the whole language game situation, that if you accept the premises of this argument through belief, then, yeah, great, go ahead. I'm sure... <laughs> I'm sure this may help you in terms of working through what you believe about God. Um, but you have to have faith in that. You know, the, the assumption is made. It's very, very assumptive that the believer should know that God is the greatest possible being. He is that than which nothing greater can be conceived. Um, so that is a matter of faith. And obviously faith is very important to religious people. But if you are taking this beyond faith, so if you're taking this to people who don't have faith at all, are they going to be persuaded that God's definition is that he necessarily exists? Are they going to be persuaded that God is the greatest possible being and therefore he cannot be thought to not exist? Like, is that going to work in the age of science, in the age of empiricism, in a world where we value concrete evidence for the things we believe? Is that going to work? And again, it may work for people who believe in Anselm's assumptions. But beyond that worldview, beyond that language game, what impact is this argument actually going to have for people? You know, can you define God into existence? Um... Who is going to believe it? Which language games um, are going to be open to this whole argument and which language games are going to completely <laughs> miss it? It's going to go straight over their heads because they're going to go, what on earth are you talking about? What on earth are you going on about? So we're very much, I think, depending on a lot here. This argument depends on a lot. It depends on a certain definition of God. It depends on accepting existence as a predicate of God. You know, it, it, it really has lots of assumptions which require faith. Now, Anselm himself acknowledged that and he believed that. He was all about faith precedes understanding. But when we use this argument today, when we look at this argument today, how successful can it be? You know, it would be very impressive if it worked because then we could all sit here and go, wow, through logic alone, through thought alone, Anselm has proven that if you can just think of God, then you must believe he necessarily exists. And, you know, just another deep question. What does he mean by existence? What does Anselm actually mean by existence? What is the nature of existence? And obviously he does say exists in the mind and in reality, but what does he mean by reality? You know, what is this concept of existence? But that's a very philosophical question just to reflect on. Not in the 40 minutes you're writing your answer though, my loves. <laughs> um, save that, save that for a late night conversation. Do you know what I mean? Um, oh my God, I'm so sorry someone's now cutting the hedge. How rude. We're talking about Anselm, dear. These neighbours. <clears throat> I'm saying nothing. I'm having a sip of my green tea. What would Descartes say about that? He wouldn't be happy. He wouldn't be happy. Right, okay. Where were we? Oh, yes. So we just need to conclude now by zooming out. So this was an a priori way of proving God exists by saying that if we can conceive of God, then we must know that he exists because... Um, by definition, God is the greatest possible being and so must exist both in the mind and in reality, by definition. This is obviously a priori. So if we're just zooming out and saying a priori versus a posteriori, obviously a priori arguments are favoured by the likes of Plato, Descartes and Anselm um, on the grounds that they avoid... Um, any reliance on the senses, which can deceive us, which can mislead us, you know, which cannot be trusted. We trace that back to the analogy of the cave and Plato. Um, they work within defined terms. So you could say they're very logical. The logic is easy to follow through. A priori works for things like um, pure logic, obviously, maths, uh, tautologies. And so... It, it, it does work in certain circumstances. The question is, does it work as an argument um, for the existence of God? 
can you use this kind of a priori argument to prove the existence of God or indeed the existence of anything existing in the in the physical world, in the real world? Um, you could also argue that modern forms of the ontological argument, which are a priori, are more convincing than traditional ones. So, you know, over time, the the credibility, if you like, of ontological arguments, a priori arguments have improved. What about on the other side of the um, fence then, the a posteriori arguments? Talking in particular about... Um, the ontological argument, Aquinas, St. Thomas Aquinas rejected a priori ontological arguments because you cannot know the nature of God, so you cannot follow Anselm's argument through. A really, really good synoptic link there to, uh, again, religious language, to via negativa, via positiva. This whole argument is dependent on the idea that you can conceive of God, you can know God, a lot of thinkers obviously take that via negative approach that you have to enter a cloud of unknowing. You can't know anything about God directly. So the idea you could start saying this is the definition of God that totally violates that whole notion of the via negativa, which is so, so central to a lot. I would say, of Christian thought. However, on the other hand, you could say uh, the Bible talks a lot about the characteristics of God. But does the Bible talk about God as the greatest possible being? Is that a definition we derive from the Bible? Um, so lots and lots of questions there. Slightly off topic. Um, David Hume rejected ontological arguments because you cannot think of a being that cannot exist. So that whole idea of necessary existence, totally challenged by David Hume. Um, everything can always be thought of not existing. You do need experience. And that is a really good general point about a posteriori arguments. The idea that you need evidence. People like things, AJS said, for which they have evidence. We like evidence. Um, you know, we like that empiricism. It gives us confidence. It gives us conviction, certainty, assurance in our beliefs. Um, and then on the question of arguments for God in particular, a really interesting argument is um, that God would be knowable through the world. So obviously with an a priori argument, it's all about saying you can't know anything through the world because your senses deceive you. But you could argue with these arguments for the existence of God that... Um, it doesn't make sense to not look at the world. It doesn't make sense to not use your senses because surely some evidence of God's handiwork is knowable to us, available out there in the world around us. Um, and the example that is obviously given is teleological argument, the watchmaker analogy, and the idea that there is some evidence of design in the world. So use your senses. You've been given your senses. God's designed the world. Surely an argument proving God would use those senses he's given you and use the world he's created for you. Why would you not find evidence of his handiwork? So why would you not take an a posteriori argument approach to proving or demonstrating, justifying the existence of God. So what do you think? Do you think an ontological argument justifies the existence of God? Let me know in the comments down below. I would love to hear what you think. That is it from me for this week. I hope I haven't <laughs> sent you into a bit of a um, a metaphysical breakdown, <laughs> to put it um, lightly. It is a complex argument. It's a difficult argument. Um, just keep in mind all those different factors such as what does the argument assume um you know what evidence does it actually provide or not and who might the argument work for and who might have the biggest objections to it and why and remember objections from both religious thinkers such as Aquinas and then obviously non-religious thinkers. Um, and think of those synoptic links, especially to language games, because this is essentially a play on words. You know, it is essentially purely using language to prove God exists. Can you do that? Let me know in the comments down below. Have a great day and I will see you very soon.